Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode, we'll see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today's episode, we'll be covering the entities of one of the coolest, most fun horror anthologies in recent memory, and one chock full of monsters, incidentally, and, and stories, the Mortuary Collection, while chatting with its director, Ryan Spindell. Fans of the show can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Podbean, uh, and also follow us on Twitter at HFT Deep Dive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes and Looper, co-edited books on monster media, written bunch of stuff about the topic and obviously I'm the host of this thing so I'm kind of obsessed with monsters. Uh, mm. <laughs> I'd like to introduce today's uh, uh, guest co uh, rotating co-host Andrew Fleming Dunn, uh, Twitch streamer and co-host of this fine audio establishment and Mike Vaughn, founder of The Video Addict, your source for reviews, news, and exclusive interviews. Uh, thank you both for uh, being rotating co-hosts on this episode. Absolutely my friend. And I'm particularly pleased to introduce our special guest. Uh, Ryan Spindell is the director and writer of the Mortuary Collection, uh, the horror anthology you can find uh, on Shudder and elsewhere that blew up 2019's Fantastic Fest, yeah. and just won Fangoria's coveted Chainsaw Award for Clancy Brown's excellent supporting performance. Every time I see Clancy Brown on screen, it just makes me happy because he's right? in so much great <laughs> stuff and he's so talented and charismatic. I'm just like, oh. I'm always excited to see which Clancy Brown you're going to get because it's like, you know, the nice Earth 2 Clancy Brown or are we getting like Pet Cemetery 2 Clancy Browns? I love it. <laughs> right, right. No, I know. I remember I, it, was, it was a little nerve-wracking meeting somebody like that because, you know, I grew up loving him in so many different things from like prestige stuff to, yeah, to, to Pet Cemetery 2. Um, and there's that like fear that when you meet your heroes, they're going to somehow be disappointing. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, while he... He wasn't disappointing at all, uh, both in stature because he's like 42 feet tall in person <laughs> and his hands are massive. Um, but also he's just the coolest, most down to earth guy. It's hard to imagine how you could spend a career working with such amazing filmmakers and such a wide array of films and still be so grounded. It's, it's really something phenomenal. Yeah, like I, I feel like everybody has seen Clancy Brown <laughs> give a distinctive performance in one of their favorite films. Like he's so... <laughs> talented and weirdly i live in la too um i can actually fit he's so tall i can see him out my window <laughs> just walking in the distance <laughs> like a titan because he is one <laughs> no such a wonderful i i hope to meet him someday uh, so the mortuary collection is is uh is an anthology story and and all the individual stories are woven together with the frame story so the plot summary for the frame story is in this small town of Raven's End. Uh, there's a mortician, Montgomery Dark, who manages the Raven's End mortuary. And one day he's visited by a young woman who's uh, responding to a help wanted sign. He gives her an interview and a sort of tour of the place while he's telling her these narratives of how the people that have died and are buried there have ended up there. So it's a series of narratives. It's, a, it's really a love letter to storytelling. Uh, and it has a lot of twists and turns uh, in the frame story as well as in the individual units therein. So I'll just leave it there because we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. There's so much, but uh, I just want to, uh, does anyone, Mike or Andrew first have any general impressions they'd like to give before we start? Uh, yeah, I thought it was awesome. You know, I got to see it at Fantasia Fest and yeah, it's just so striking. It's such a visually interesting film and you know, I, I rewatched it again, um, probably like this, this is the fourth time. And I mean, it, it's, you know, the, there's, it, it's such a fairy tale like setup with like the book and that like opening shot that it really just sets 
the tone for the entire film and like mm-hmm. that tone never wavers it's it's incredible um so everything is just spot on i mean the production design is is phenomenal oh, wonderful yeah that house or the mortuary is beautiful i mean it looks like such a huge budget and i know you um you know we're working on a with a modest budget but i mean wow it's it's great i mean it's you can definitely tell like every cent kind of went up on the screen, which, you know, that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will just like briefly speak to the tone because we can get to this when we're actually like talking about the the little stories, but there's a, a it's, it's really pervaded by, I love, I, I love like when a film has a magical feeling in the way that mm-hmm. like Hugo does or big fish where it feels like something more than, real life is happening in front of your eyes and there's a a lot of that feeling in the film uh like that elevator sequence which we'll get to i'm sure uh it feels like you're watching something you shouldn't be seeing and it has Mm -hmm. just that energy to it that's hard to capture love it the the score i thought was did a lot of the carrying of that like that uh the i i I fell in love with the movie almost immediately because it does that great thing that all anthologies that I, at least I love do, which is it, it, it gives you that great opening. Like I love the opening credit sequence with the uh, newspaper boy as we start on the town and things are normal. And then as we get closer and closer to the mortuary, uh, the weirder things get. And we have this wonderful sense of just, we're leaving what we know behind and we're entering you know, this storybook. Cause yeah, it, it feels like a collection of kids stuff. It, it has that wonderful feeling like, I know when you discovered like an anthology set as a kid, they almost always felt safe to watch something like Tales from the Dark Side until they weren't. <laughs> and, and this hit that like perfectly. And yeah, I just, the tone is what really struck me with this because it's, it's kind of fanciful. It's very adult and it's magical. I, I think you hit the word on the head, magical. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That's interesting because I... Um... It, it, it's cool to, I, I feel like I'm learning more about myself um, through this film, through, as, as I'm seeing it through other people's eyes. And mm-hmm. uh, for a long time when I was a kid, I was, I was really, really terrified of, um, of horror. So I would avoid anything that's horror related. As far as um, film and TV, I, I would avoid it. Uh, and so I lived basically on comedy and I lived on Spielberg and I lived on these sort of dark fantasies. Dark fantasy was the closest I would get into the realm for the longest time. Um, and it was uh, movies like Creepshow and Tales from the Dark Side that were sort of some of my first foray into um, into the genre for that exact reason. Because I, I remember as a kid, the animated sequences within Creepshow would, would always make me feel like, well, this is for kids. It must be. It, it's animation. At that point in time, <laughs> animation just was for kids. So... So it would it would lure me in and trick me, and every time I would it would scare the shit out of me. But I would I would watch it again and forget because I was that like the idea of animation or the idea of that sort of tone felt so specific to something for kids. And so now, even though I have you know later in high school fell in love with the genre and have gone back and caught up and I, I sort of watch everything now, I think that my my fundamentals were founded in uh, in that sort of dark fantasy component, and I think that sort of seems to uh, work its way into everything I do. I have done stuff that was more straight horror, but even with the straight horror, somehow it sort of the, the dark fantasy and, and the humor kind of kind of works its way into it. And uh, and I think that's really cool that that's how it feels going in because I remember the evolution of this project feeling somewhat like the evolution of of my foyer into horror and and how my tastes in horror have evolved through the years in the same sort of way. Um, that the the tone of this movie kind of evolves, and the and the morality of the movie kind of evolves as the as the thing progresses. I can absolutely see that. Yeah, you you mentioned how uh, how it kind of got started a little bit, but I know that the babysitter murders you did first that that segment, or uh, and can you tell us kind of like how it got started with that and how it it kind of dovetailed into a larger project? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it all started wanting to see more anthology movies. I think I wrote the first draft of the script in 2012. And at the time there was zero, I think trick or treat had come out. Mm-hmm. I want to say like not long before that, but otherwise it was kind of like a format that was lost. And I, and I had, you know, growing up on it, I, I always had sort of my heart 
uh, in the anthology format. But then as I was thinking about how we don't see it anymore, I started doing deeper dives into kind of the old amicus films and the sort of the original sort of uh, anthologies that kind of started it all, uh, you know, post EC comics. And, uh, and, I, and I really, I, I was even more in love with these sort of, um, these like uh, co combined stories all from a creator, all kind of somewhat working together in, um, in, in, to create a larger story, which I think is, um, has worked to various levels of success uh, throughout the years. Um, and so I kind of just sat down to try to, to write the movie I would be the most excited if I saw a trailer for. Um, fully knowing that that nobody was going to to make this movie because I'd been told again and again that anthology movies they just are impossible to get financed or set up. Um, some of that's changed since then because the the sort of you know the, the aggregate anthology movies kind of rose up like the VHS movies and those became more financially uh, easy to pull off because you had multiple directors kind of giving their all to like make their segments the best they could be. Um, but as far as sort of one like overall feature film with uh, you know one creative team, that was a trickier proposal. Uh, so I wrote the script just to excise uh, that demon, just to sort of get it on paper and have people say uh, no and then put it away. But because I'm obsessive about anything I get involved in, I put it on paper and then I was like, well, now I have to make it. And so then when people said no, as I anticipated they would, I was like, well, it, it's shorts and I've made several shorts already. I can just take one of these shorts out of the movie um, make it and then show people what it can be and see if I can convince them, you know, through that route. And so basically um, I did a Kickstarter. I took the, of the five shorts, I took the smallest one that had the least amount of actors. And the, I think it's a single location film. Uh, and I pulled that out of the feature and I did a Kickstarter and I raised some money for that. And we, uh, yeah, financed and shot that in 2015. Um, and that movie uh, did a lot of a lot of festivals. We we won a bunch of stuff. Um, I got some fancy new reps in LA, and it seemed like everything was looking up. But um, this the the idea of doing the feature was still uh, something that nobody was interested in doing. And so um, along that path, I think I had met a uh, development executive at one of the companies named Allison Friedman, and um, she was like, "My boss will never make this film." Uh, we don't make anything under $100 million, but um, if you're interested, I'd like to try to raise money on the side to do this independently. And of course I said, yes, because why wouldn't you? And then <laughs> I left the meeting and like always, you leave these meetings and you expect to never hear from these people again. Uh, and then about six months later, she just called me up out of the blue. Um, as my uh, producing partner, Justin and I were, were literally having a conversation about you know, retiring the movie, putting it away and moving on because we were, had been working on it for so long. It's like, okay, we got to find something that's more realistic. Mm -hmm. And she called up and she said, uh, I have some money. Do you want to make this movie? And uh, so then it became a process of, okay, now how are we going to make this big, unwieldy horror fantasy that's set in uh, sort of a timeless period aesthetic with vintage cars and buildings? And uh, we started meeting with... Um, uh, line producers, which is like the person who takes your budget and tells you how it's going to be spent. And we met with three different line producers and all three of them said that there's no way we could make this movie for less than four times what we had. And even at that budget level, <laughs> it was going to be like a shadow of its former self. Like I was going to have to rewrite everything. Um, and so we were sitting there and we, ha we had like, you know, this chunk of money and nobody that would sort of even help us, even for pay, nobody would actually like budget it for us. And so we said, well, look, we've made a bunch of shorts. We know how to pull that off. We made the babysitter murders. That turned out pretty good. Let's just start shooting this movie piece by piece. Uh, and we'll just shoot until we're, until we're done. Because otherwise we risk losing the money and being back to square one. So basically that's what we did. We started shooting um, over the next two years, <laughs> we shot this movie uh, piece by piece, uh, which started out in kind of larger, um, you know, shoots that had kind of a full, a fully robust crew of like 30 people or so, mm -hmm. and then worked our way down to nights and weekends where it was literally just <laughs> me, my camera and my producer, Justin, uh, in a fog machine shooting shots of this movie. And we just shot it piece by piece by piece by piece until it was done. So it was this like epic process of being in production for two years straight, which I, I wouldn't recommend anybody try to do. Um, so when people say like, well, how do you pull off such high production value for no money? I say, all you have to, to do is give up your, uh, your friends and your family and, and your dreams and your sanity and uh, everything that you love and then uh, you can do it. 
Well, uh, and I mean, obviously, unfortunately, you know, the line producers were right. It'll never get made. It definitely won't be winning a Fangoria Awards <laughs> and have a have a 97% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Those things will never happen. Never. No. no. I'm not even going to check the rating on Rotten Tomatoes because I know it'll never happen. Exactly. No. What's the point? That site, dead to me. Doesn't even exist. Um, yep. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> No, but uh, uh, I, you know, we all love it. Obviously, uh, so happy to have you yeah. on. Um, the the attention to detail, and uh, yes. like, is really evident in in every aspect of it. And I was very impressed, especially knowing that you filmed the segments over time, that it has a mm -hmm. unified feel, even though they're independent stories. Which you know, having very different feels in an anthology is nice. But it was very impressive to me to see it kind of like like reading one author's like anthology work, you know, uh, yes. where you can get those yes. themes, where you can tease that out. I really enjoyed that part of it. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. No, it was um, I, it was. Yeah, it was interesting. Is there any uh, particular entry that either of you would like to ask some questions about? For me, really, uh, before before we started recording um I, I believe the uh the marriage story one in the elevator is just on a visual level the music the acting just <laughs> wow i wasn't expecting it because it felt like such a tonal shift uh, particularly in comparison to the uh you know um exploding penis and you know it was just like wow didn't see that coming <laughs> And uh, didn't see any of it coming. And then, yeah, the exploding, the man giving birth, uh, which I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. Um, so thank you. And also I should probably go to therapy because I laughed way too yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it happens. No, it, it really does not. For me, like uh, what I really wanted to ask you about was, you know, these carry with them the, the heavy morality dosing of, of like an EC with a bit of the cocked eyebrow of the EC. But what I, I really enjoyed was that you took the basic formula. Like we all sit down knowing, thinking we know exactly where these are going. And, and I love that you were able to kind of turn the twists and reveal another twist that we didn't quite see coming um where where exactly were the inspirations because I mean, let's face it most anthologies i think today pull from hbo's brilliant tales from the crypt and the ec comic whereas and you did pull this almost felt like uh tales from the crypt made a baby with amazing stories <laughs> yeah that's and, correct uh, yeah and uh you know like was that like the particular aim was to just not do the same old kind of creep show Tales from the Crypt vibe and, and, and where did it really like, where did the spark come from? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, it came from two things. It, it started as I wanted to make, uh, it started out of love and sort of the homage to the genre and the format. So it started in, in a very baseline place. There, there's things I, I love the, I love the host character, the, the creepy mm -hmm. old host. I love the, the creaky old house on the hill. I love the gothic uh, setting, the sleepy weird town where nothing is, it seems. Um, so, so I started with, with all of, with the wraparound and then even the individual stories. I started with just what I love as a fan. And that was kind of the baseline. Um, mm -hmm. And once that was laid out, then the next question was like, okay, great, homage film, wonderful. But that's, let's do something more. Like, how can we push this? Like, what, what do people expect to see in uh, any given moment, and then how can we turn it on its head, both um, aesthetically and story-wise, but also within the characters themselves. Like, I uh, absolutely adore um, Tales from the Crypt. That series is, is incredible. Um, but I think that sometimes the, the characters tended to gravitate a little bit cartoony yes. um, as far as like who they were. So, so the, that was the first thing was like, how do we take these characters and say like, okay, here's the general setup that you could see in, an, in a Tales from the Crypt, but like, can we add a slight bit more dimension to this character, you know, given the, the 15 to 20 minute run times, which is tricky in itself because you basically mm -hmm. have one to two scenes to, to latch onto a character and then you're sort of off and running. Um, but it, it just sort of became all about this evolution. And, and, and interestingly, from the time that we like, knew we were gonna make the movie to the time we were shooting, all of the stories, all of the characters and all of the elements evolved dramatically. As we just, I sat down with my producers every day and we said, what do we expect to happen here? How can we do it differently? What, what would this be every single time? How can we sort of come at it from a new angle? Not just to be subversive, not to, to just to, to mix it up, but just to try to see if we could push the, the, the format 
further or, or push it as much further as we were able to do uh, with, within the given constraints of obviously, you know, it's not enough, a lot of budget or time. Um, but, but that's cool that you say that because I, I kind of wanted it to be both. Like I wanted it to be, I, I've seen a lot of anthologies that will sort of, they don't feel, they don't respect the three act structure of what a story needs to be. And so mm -hmm. they'll give you like a great concept or, or a scene or, or a slice of something. And then they like divert off and they don't give you like that good solid ending. And I remember yes. feeling from the start mm -hmm. was each of these stories needs to be, at least for my taste, it has to be a fully fleshed out three X story uh, with a great ending. Um, and, and that's, I can't sacrifice on that because if one story sort of is weak, the rest kind of tumbling down like a sort of deck of cards. And I, and I think that's up to interpretation, right? I think some people will watch this and say, I love them all. And some people say, I only love one. I hated the rest. That That's kind of how fans are, especially within the genre. Um, but I remember being very like admit, like another producer said to me, um, well, why don't we chop them all up like Pulp Fiction? So it feels kind of like they're all one story, but you're kind of seeing the, the fragments. And I knew I wanted to stay really true to the original anthology format. I wanted these stories to be told in one in one sort of setting. I wanted you to be able to take any of the stories out and watch it on its own and it still be a fulfilling experience, um, which ended up being a really incredibly tough challenge um, to pull off. I can imagine. Because, yeah, and, and not only do you, are, there, are people's tastes so varied and and even if, you know, there's there's several different subgenres here. So if you love slasher movies, but you hate monster movies, like this movie is gonna like, throw you for a tilt a little bit, I guess. Um, but not only just sort of, you know, trying to write these stories in, in these sort of self-contained, satisfying chunks, but then also when we were shooting them and having to like, sometimes we would, I would shoot a piece of one story in the morning and a piece of another story at night <laughs> and keeping those storylines and those characters in my brain as we waited three more months to shoot the rest of it or another piece <laughs> became incredibly, incredibly hard. Oh, wow. One of the things that I, I really do appreciate is that even I would say the most narratively simple story is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the very first one with the, the woman in the bathroom. There's one location. It's a very simple, short, cut and dried story. Uh, but it's, uh, I love that it does. You do feel that even that short amount of time, it has a full structure. And then the simplicity of it is kind of like chided in story, which mm -hmm. is so interesting to me. Uh, I love that choice. And I also love that you even call into question like the, the morality of it as a, in terms of like these stories often have morality tales mm -hmm. implicit in them or explicit in them, which is literally the entire premise of the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I really, uh, yeah, I just, I just love that that was such a conscious call to attention. And, uh, mm. but, the the thing I wanted to ask is like which of these the, these small subunits of the story like if you were to have a favorite, and I know this is kind um, of like asking someone to like pick their favorite kid, <laughs> but everybody has a favorite kid. You just lie about it. Which of these stories <laughs> is your favorite? Um, well, first off, I'm not going to answer the second question uh, for that exact reason. Um, but uh, it's interesting. I, I well, thank you for the for the kind words on the first one. I for my tastes. Um, I, I love the, the first segment. Uh, uh, I, I love it completely. I, I think like Sam's reaction, I used to have this sort of debate with a writer friend of mine who would say, um, I, I hate shorts. I hate short stories. I hate short movies. And the reason is, is they're like one night stands. He's like, I want my media to be a, a love affair. I don't want a one night stand. And I was like, well, one night stands have their place. Like, and sometimes <laughs> some things should remain one night stands. Sometimes you don't want a love affair with a certain person. I feel the same way about stories. And I think that um, I'm a huge fan of short format. And I think that the length of the story does not have any correlation to the quality. Mm -hmm. um, and and I wanted to tell a variation on, on stories. Like there, we've seen these yeah. shorts that are three minutes that go viral. Um, and some of them are, are, are wonderful. And I wanted to play with that in this movie. And, I, and the reason that I wrote Sam's reaction is because I was like, I wanna do something that's basically a silent film, one person in the room with a monster and see if I could pull that off as a three act structure with all the mm -hmm. sort of general conventions of a normal story. But I knew that critics were gonna watch it and say, <laughs> that's, for, that's not a story. That, that's like a vignette, that's like a, a slight, that's not a story. And when so, did she go off to war? When did she have yeah. her homecoming yeah. situation? Yeah, yeah. Or, 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 oh, I was disappointed in the first one. I would like to have spent more time getting to know the character. Like, 
that's you're missing the point. It's a five minute story. And so Sam is essentially saying what I know people are already going to say ahead of time. So it was a, allowed me to like do the thing that I like have a passion for that I wanted to do while also saying like, look, I get it. It's not going to it's not going to be for everybody. Um, and, and, and interestingly, that conversation about that short was sort of the first piece that kind of really led to sort of uh, Sam and Montgomery's entire debate <laughs> and, and this idea of, of this, this old school guy with a very old school, antiquated, classic style of storytelling that he loves, which I also love. And then this sort of like plucky young girl comes in and says like, ah, stories can't be like this. Now movies have to be this and they got to do this and they got to they gotta suffer an expectation. They got to do it, have a twist. And I kind of love that person too. I love those movies mm -hmm. too. And so it was like, it became this debate of... <laughs> The, the old school, the old guard, and the new guard, and which which one's right? And and ultimately, I believe that they're they're both right. I think it's a, a fusion of the two where something special can be, uh, can be made. Mm -hmm. I thought it was like a wonderful. I I thought of it as like an amuse bouche. It's like this perfect bite that lets you know what the upcoming meal is going to be. You know, because you have the kind of uh, fusion of the uh, the styles. You know, with like uh, the technology and what year are we in? Is it the fifties, seventies, eighties, nineties? Is it now? It, it, it set the course. You know, your winking sense of humor. The fact that this is going to be a bit more playful. I, I thought it was just like this perfect because it also it doesn't really get you comfortable with how the storytelling is going to go down. So then what the next story is right. the, the, the college story. And then, you know, you follow that. It, it's every story feels like they're told from the same teller, like you said earlier, but it, it they're each very much their own thing. But that first story, it's simple. It's to the point. It's yeah. funny. It's fun. And it's, it lets you know that you're not in you're not in safe hands, but you're yeah. in good one. It sets up like a really cool dynamic, uh, kind of building off that where, um, whereas like he tells a story, he's like, ha, got you. You're going to get my point. And she's like, what, whatever, old man, that doesn't even count. And he's like, oh, fine. <laughs> yep. You want to, you want to hear something that counts? And like, it changes his, his own, like puts him on the back yep. foot a little bit, which seems like we find out is something that doesn't really happen to him. I'm sure all that often. Um, but yeah, it's, it's no, also it's, funny. No. Watch. I, I think it's also funny once you know what the wraparound is and what's actually going on, like mm -hmm. watching him kind of sizing her up, you know, and it's like considering everything that happens by the end of the movie, it, it's a fun dynamic and that story helps. Can I also just say uh, your production design is fantastic. The wallpaper in that bathroom, I could just oh, the crack it. That's, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah it was gorgeous <laughs> yeah where do you get that because that's actually the the wallpaper i want in the bathroom we're about to remodel right um I, that so so that was th this is just kind of like a little indicator of what might be one of the few advantages to making a movie um piece by piece like this over several years and that that is um i actually have this really incredible artist friend who hand painted that wallpaper on the wall ah. of our set that Ooh. we built um, so it's Gorgeous. yeah, Christian Gossett. He's a he's an incredible um, he's an incredible comic book uh, writer, um, artist, and uh, filmmaker. And he was doing some storyboards for me for the the tentacle sequence. And um, I had this idea that I was like, I'd really love to have like a crack in drawing and pulling a ship down in the wallpaper. And he was like, Oh, I could do that for you. So he basically sat there for about a day and just hand painted that oh. that entire like ocean scene. It was really incredible. And that's the kind of thing that's that amazing. like. You know, I think if you have a, a studio budget, you can like hire these amazing teams of people and they come in and then at night you walk in and it's a beautiful set. But like with something like this, where our set probably costs $4,000 in total, um, everybody was like pulling triple duty. And it's something that if we'd shot all of these back to back to back, we never would have been able to even come close to doing that. But because I was able to go, hey, Christian, what are you doing <laughs> this Saturday? You want to come by and paint a mural he was like, like you know sometimes a friend asks a friend a favor <laughs> and that friend can't say no <laughs> you just don't get yeah, to exactly. the word sumptuous a lot i think with production design <laughs> when it comes to uh, uh lower budget independent features and and i loved every set in this film the the, the windows the wallpaper and it's just it does that great thing where I don't know if I'm the only one who does this, but in anthology stuff where there's a host, you keep looking in the background to try to figure out all the different stories. Or if you remember that uh, that show, Friday the 13th, the series where they're hunting down antiques. I always like looking in the vault, just going, 
what did that rake do? <laughs> you know, like, it knows what it did. <laughs> <laughs> it it, it rakes leaves, but, Andrew. Well, it's in a, it's an evil bolt. It's got to be. I want to know what evil a rake does. But it, it's like you know, when you look at the production design and like everything on his desk, the uh, the beautiful stained glass behind him, um, every book on the shelf. Like it, you don't get that kind of attention to detail and kind of beauty in production design, even in um, bigger budgeted uh, horror yeah. films these days. I just, I really wanted to applaud you uh, and your team for that. Oh, thank you. Thank it's you. Yes. Uh, I mean, I had an awesome team. Uh, Lauren Fitzsimmons and uh, Harrison Chambers and Katie, um, they all uh, really brought the A game. And, and it was, my background is sort of uh, production design and an uh, art as well. And so um, I've been on the other side of things. I've been on art teams. I know how often the art teams get shafted uh, on a film set. That's they're they're always the the sort of quietest department. So the cinematographer comes in, he gets all the fancy equipment, and the the production team comes in, they get all the fancy equipment, and then the art team is always left with the scraps. And they're always yeah. the first person on set, the last person who gets to leave. They're cleaning up. They're kind of doing all the grunt work. But um, having been on those teams and understanding what an impact they can have on a project when given the the sort of the rope to hang themselves with, um, so to say. And so when we sat down early on with the budget of this movie, it just became about, okay, cut this, put it to art, cut this, put it to art, no trailers, put it to art. And we just shifted as much as we could into the art department, keeping in mind that the art department had nowhere near what they needed mm. to pull off what they actually pulled mm -hmm. off. And so many of the things you see in the movie um, were things that were donated by local antique shops, um, local museums, almost everything in the mortuary, uh, at least 75% of what you see in the mortuary was donated from different people in Astoria, oh, Oregon, where he shot to kind beautiful. of create that um, with the custom pieces. It is, but she looked, she everything down to the doorknobs, those those windows, um, mm -hmm. the stained glass windows were hand-painted by, um, by Kate. It was really something to behold. And it was sort of like, we almost set the bar so high right off the top that we didn't, <laughs> We had to keep going with it. Like we couldn't like let it drop. So we kind of backed ourselves into a bit of a corner. But at the end of the day, uh, it was, yeah, it, it became something that I think is, um, is is really unique and special. And I agree. I think my favorite movies are the kind of movies that you could watch again and again and again. And every time you pick up sort of clues and details. And mm -hmm. I remember putting stuff in this movie that people were like, nobody's ever going to notice that. I'm like, Maybe not on the first six times, but the seventh yeah. time they're going to catch on and it's going to be great. Because mm -hmm. I love that. I want that as a fan. I want yeah. that like extra level of detail and obsession mm -hmm. to like really bring stories like this to life. Yeah. I always love worlds in in films where I I know that in a sense, it's like a love letter to fans and that the director and the writer are are in love with the thing that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And you can always tell by the attention to detail. Like in a Del Toro movie, how Shape of Water, the, the printing on the wallpaper is like aquatic imagery from like classic Japanese art or the structure of the smaller scale movie, the movie Splinter. You know, you can tell that that director is in love with monster movies yeah. and it comes out and you can tell as a fan. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. It screens off the, off the screen with this like every frame is just so delicately put together and and it, it's all the devil's entirely in the details here from the uh, clancy brown's the teeth in his mouth are just <laughs> you know they kind of have that london after midnight vibe and and uh yes and uh the the newspaper kid that he's the brightest dressed thing in the entire film and he stands out amongst all the darkness and and the architecture too like every location you chose as an exterior is beautiful and, and uh raven's end just feels like a place i want to go to <laughs> and, and watch more of because wow that town's got some it, it's got some horrific beauty to it it's your team did a fantastic job oh thank you thank you yeah i, yeah, I love i i love it uh, we shot all of that exterior stuff in um astoria oregon i'm not sure if you guys have ever been there that's where they shot all the exteriors for goonies Mm. It's this like nice. it's awesome. Yeah, it's just like this uh little sleepy Victorian town on the ocean, like with cliffs on one side and massive sort of redwood trees on the other, and it's foggy all the time and it's always dreary. We were there for two months and it really felt like living in a uh in a horror movie, which was which is perfect for making one. <laughs> Very strangely, uh 
East Coast feeling. Like I was kind of shocked to find out you shot in Oregon. It just it feels very much like something I'd stumble across over in my neck of the woods. Um, yeah, where where just, are you? Uh, I'm I'm out in Maryland. Um, okay. But yeah, you go up like a little bit farther north, and it it, it starts to look like you know we're we're entering like New England territory. It was wonderful not just with what you did with like the props and everything with everything being out of time, but it's a wonderfully out of place and that it feels like it can be anywhere. Um, yeah, that's cool. I, it's funny you say that because I'm from Maine and I wrote the movie to be set in the, basically a town in Maine, but we couldn't, um, there were no tax incentives <laughs> there. We, like, I was even going to shoot there without tax incentives, but I, we just couldn't make it work. And so the, the West Coast began to go to, which the West Coast is sort of like <laughs> the, the East Coast, but like on steroids anyway, like everything's bigger <laughs> and crazier. Yeah. As, as someone that grew up in Washington and then moved and lived in Oregon for a while, totally true. Creepy place. Love it. <laughs> it's awesome. It's we awesome. got rainforest. We got like yeah, you monsters got and shapeshifters and big feet. Yeah, big feet. Yeah, we got tons of UFOs. If you want UFOs, <laughs> I know. I, I after leaving there, I, I I immediately um the next thing I did right after the mortuary collection is I worked on this anthology show with Sam Raimi called Fifty States of Fear. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I I picked. They were like, do you, which state do you want to do? And I was like, Oregon. Actually, I I wanted Washington, but I couldn't get it because it was already taken. So I did Oregon. Uh, as my my backup just because I, I just kind of fell in love with the pacific northwest it was my first time ever being there and i, I kind of didn't want to leave Honestly, no. yeah it's lovely it's, it's a beautiful place to shoot horror too because you know it's so like rich in forests and in weird backstory um absolutely absolutely i did want to ask uh this being a monster podcast that it is and your film being chock full of different types mm-hmm. of beasties uh how did you come up with the ideas of what specific you know, creatures you wanted to use and attributes and stuff. Like, what was that evolutionary process like? Uh, well, I just, it started off with just figuring out four different types of subgenres that I wanted to play with um, for the different stories. Cause I did want to make sure, um, I don't know how you guys, I'm, I'm assuming you guys are fans of Creepshow. One of the things, and I love it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. But one of the things that always kind of like bugs <laughs> me about Creepshow is how there are two stories that are kind of the same story. Like, there's uh, mm-hmm. something to tide you over and Father's Day. They're, they're, they're different, very different stories in how they play out, but the, 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 come up, the, the comeuppance is the same. Like someone who's dead comes back as, a, as the living dead and sort of kills you basically. And that always bummed me out for some reason because I was like, I don't want to see the same ending twice. That's, that's disappointing to me. So I remember like starting off thinking I wanted to do four dramatically different things. Um, and I kind of was combing through all these different stories I'd already written. And I actually built it um, initially. The first story, the, the bathroom story, was a, a different story altogether. It was like a much longer, uh, like uh, kind of a similarly length film to the rest. And it was this kind of like Twilight Zone esque goat sto- uh, ghost story. Goat story. Uh, it was I want to see a Twilight story. Zone goat story. Goat story. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and that was. Uh, I remember that I like I, I I got all the movies lined up and we were putting it together, and I realized that I didn't have a like a like a real monster movie and monster movies are my thing like that's my favorite subgenre like just these sort of contained small monster movies like The Fly or something along those lines or anything mm-hmm. Lovecraftian, and so when um, when we realized that we were never going to be able to afford. Um, the initial story that was in it, the script, and also the movie was going to be like two and a half hours long if we if we kept it. Um, we had to take it out. My producers were like, "Well, can you find another story that's much smaller but like still lives in the world?" And I was like, "Well, it has to be a monster movie, absolutely." Um, and so that's where the medicine cabinet, the first story, came from because I always wanted to do sort of a Lovecraftian tentacle creature beastie. Um, and as soon as I committed to it and we started putting it together, I realized that like great practical tentacle monsters are uh almost impossible to pull off and and i and i would say they are impossible to pull off as far as uh visual effects i I really am Mm -hmm. not a fan of visual effects tentacles um Mm -hmm. and i remember i called we were working with this amazing uh special effects company called adi uh doing all of our practical effects um if you guys yeah they're amazing they did you know they won an academy award for death becomes her they're uh, like one of the biggest and best uh, special effects they're companies fantastic. in the world. Yeah. So good, so good. And um, Alec uh, Guinness, who's one of the, um, 
one of the, the two uh, principals of the company, I, I called him up and I was like, look, man, I'm really scared about this tentacle monster segment that I wrote myself into because we're not gonna use visual effects for it. And if the practical effects fall apart, the whole short kind of falls apart because it really is all about this like one gag at the end. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, I, I don't know, how, what do you think? And he's like, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna personally take on this project. <laughs> and so suddenly Alec is like sending me concept art. He's taking um, parts of the original Tremors and repurposing oh. them for our movie because we, <laughs> it's insane, it's insane. So and, cool. he, and then was, next thing you know, we're like on a soundstage with a set that we built slightly modeled after the Shining bathroom. And Alec is like puppeteering these tentacles. And I was like, how did I get to this place where <laughs> one of my heroes is, yeah. is for some reason, he doesn't puppeteer, that's not what he does anymore. Now he glad hands, but he's like right in the trenches like pulling rods and moving tentacles around. Um, Amazing. And it was it was really, really a phenomenal experience. And one of those like, you know, pinch me moments that um, are rare, but like kind of keep you going within this uh, this crazy, insane uh, career path that we've chosen. <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> I was, uh, that's so cool. I always get excited when I see ADI's uh, name in the credits because you're always going to get quality work. Like um, the elevator story, uh, when the uh, the box opens and she floats out, I I was in like a horror heaven because you just so good you, yeah. you don't see it anymore not to that extent you know because that was a was that a rod puppet or that was that was like a person in a suit incredible yeah that was incredible uh, makeup on on a on a, an actor wow. who's who's, wow. who's incredible her name's V and she's basically like the go-to for uh you know one of the go-to creature effects uh performers that are in beautiful work yeah just I, the sculpting yeah oh th that makeup was so terrifying in real life i i remember we were shooting some stuff in the elevator and um she had showed up to put on makeup and i didn't know they were putting her in makeup and i walked outside to get lunch and she was just sitting there and i it genuinely scared me. <laughs> i was like <laughs> oh, it was so upsetting to look at. And in the, the, the conceptual, like we went like kind of larger than life. We kind of like used like Crimson Peak as a little bit of a starting spot for like mm -hmm. a really exaggerated mm -hmm. kind of ghost. Um, so you would think it would have a kind of a cartoony vibe, but it really did not like, and I just, it was hard to even look at her while she was in makeup. She would sometimes be sitting there in the corner, just like on an Apple box like this. And I'd be like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> And then when you're like a little bit scared, you're like, I did this to myself. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's so interesting to me too, because like that story, um, you know, it it's interesting because it doesn't really have, like all the figures in it, I would say are tragic mm -hmm. because on the one hand, obviously like the, the woman being effectively like, uh, comatose or whatever specifically the the condition is um, doesn't deserve that fate obviously and then but also it's really hard to because you, you get the feeling that that he's he's been living like that for a long time and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up and you know he things go very awry and, <laughs> and but at the same time it doesn't paint him as like a villain per se even because he's doing things more desperately and then makes mis errors, uh, and then, but he's not like uh, a, a villain. And then it just sets in motion all these supernatural events. And so I, I like that it, it adds that emotional gravitas where you, you feel the characters and you kind of get how it sucks for everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's kind of, that, that's part of this, I, I mean, that was part of the intended sort of evolution of, of morality within the stories themselves as, as the greater movie where, you know, you get your first story and it's, it's very cut and dry. You know, you, you, you're a thief, you, you pay a price. Um, and then, you know, it evolves a bit more to, uh, to somebody who is obviously a very broken human being, but very much deserves the comeuppance that he, that he gets to. Yes, and the yes, more that right. Sam is like pushing him and prying him about sort of, how black and white his stories are, the more the morality of the stories becomes gray with, with sort of the last one. And then of course that doesn't even like satisfy Sam. Now Sam's like, well, no, I don't like that because he didn't deserve it. And so it's kind of like, I guess it's sort of like, you can't please the critics to some extent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you find out that, I mean, of course, whether or not someone deserves is going to be important to her because like 
she very much sympathizes with villains. Yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Turns sure. out. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Oh, and I, uh, Mike, did you have any? Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, Andrew, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh no, just a, just to continue on about the makeup. Her makeup at the end, when she's mm. given her new job, is mm-hmm. just what a wonderful look. Just the the tight dress with the high neck, the the patchwork face, the pancake make. I just I love the designs you guys came up with in this. It just it's kind of wonderful mixture of of kind of the new school stuff. Um, mm-hmm with that, that 80s like I kept thinking back to like uh Return of Living Dead and Fright Night mm. in particular in terms of just oh, yeah. the art look you know and the, the kind of sculpting style and it's like I love it just yeah thank you guys and so a little much. bit of like um I, I remember like <laughs> and this is probably part of the reason that we scared off our line producers in the beginning but it, at the script phase even the, the details of um how the house looked and how Montgomery looked at the center of it um, were very intricate. So there, the idea was that the house itself was almost like an extension of him and the, the patterns yes. on his vest would be the patterns on the wallpaper and the windows are very custom. So whoever is sitting behind the desk, the house kind of becomes a custom version of their own house, which I thought was kind of a cool- uh, Yeah, mm-hmm. the windows Conceptual changed. framework. Yeah, yeah the, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and and if it was if this was like you know a studio movie where you would see the the molding change and the the accoutrement on the desks and it would become this person's like a, sort of a reflection of this person's who they are on the inside, which I think is just such a fun idea for especially for something in which more stories are are ready to be told by sort of you know various people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, Mike. Did you have any questions that you would like to ask? Yeah, like I guess a two part question. Um, like if you uh, would you be interested in making like a, a feature film out of one of their segments? And if, if you would, uh, which one? A lot of people asked me that question after the babysitter murders because um, they were like, just make the babysitter murders as a feature. <laughs> like that's it's a no brainer. <laughs> I think- like, no, that I won't get to be on the monster podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I also just, um, again, it's, it's part of my love for the short format is not seeing it as a stepping stone to something bigger, but as its own sort of thing. And, and just because of that, um, it would be so hard for me to take these things that I've spent so much time kind of crafting as, as small sort of chunks and turning it in. I, I had another short of mine options um, when I first moved to LA and I was trying to adapt it. And it just became a weird weak sauce version of, of the short, because it was like, you, you have all these things you love and you're trying to maintain certain things you almost have to destroy it completely and rebuild it from scratch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, if somebody came to me, if an amazing screenwriter came to me with a script and they're like, here's the till death feature, you got to take a look. I would read it for sure. Um, but I don't think I would ever sort of sit down, you know, with the typewriter and just be like, all right, here we go. At this point, I want these stories to kind of live as they are. And I want to I tell more of these short stories, actually. Love it. Um, uh, for the record, when I come at you with my feature for the two hours of the woman in the bathroom, and she'll be in the bathroom <laughs> the whole time. No dialogue. Just exactly. It's like going through the wallet contents. I love it. <laughs> what is that like, uh, Legit, where you could just tell it in a series of stills, except the tentacles are the only moving frames? That'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, there you go. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be cool. And, and, oh, go ahead. Oh no, I, um, I, I think, yeah, like an expansion of the universe, I would, I would pull in different sort of mediums like that, like different sort of filming t- techniques and animation, claymation. Like, I think it'd be cool to like explore all the avenues of Raven's End through all these like different artistic mediums just mm-hmm. as a place I, to play. I wanted to ask that too, because the place feels so alive and uh, it feels like a town that's just kind of ready to be explored. Are there more stories? Have you thought more about Raven's End oh, as yeah. a place? Oh yeah, I, I mean, I have probably 15 stories ready to go. There are, if you pay close attention to the newspapers in the beginning, mm-hmm. some of the headlines in the newspapers are directly connected to other stories that are set in Raven's End. It was kind of the beauty of, of creating Raven's End and knowing that all of these other stories were potentially working uh, just in the shadows or just outside of frame to be explored. So I, I hope that someday uh, there, we get the opportunity to sort of get back into it. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, I do want to ask to be respectful of your time. I know you have okay. a bit of a limit. 
I do. Yeah, I, th I think I have a, a meeting in four minutes. Okay. Um, well, we have time, I guess, then for one more question before outro. If uh... okay, well then I, I have one quick one. Um, how? What is the the most efficient version of the story of how you came up with the the unprotected one of the? Because uh, uh, we didn't talk much about that yet, but it's awesome. And I, I, I love oh, it. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> um. That's a good question. I don't remember. I, I sometimes I, these stories start with an ending. Um, mm -hmm. That one, <laughs> I don't know if I exploding dick was like on my notepad, and then I like sat and considered how I could get there. <laughs> As it always is, you know. What if when men could become pregnant? Well, just <laughs> I, I think I think it all comes down to the the question that that he asks, which is like. You know, there's there's been junior, there's been jokes or not jokes. There's been situations in which men have carried babies, and, and we we all have thought of it, and it's it's clearly something that women would love us to do instead of them. But I that the question, where is it going to come out, was the the first thing, and then I it, then it's like we're working our way backwards. Like, well, who's the person that deserves something so so gnarly? Uh, and yeah. then you know, all of us to some degree probably. So, um, so yeah. And, and then and then and that was kind of I, I wanted to play with body horror, but I also wanted to play like I'm not above gross out horror and gross out humor. I love mm -hmm. that stuff, and I knew it wouldn't it wasn't going to fit in some of the stories here, but I knew like mm -hmm. oh this is a perfect place to kind of play with a bit more contemporary, some more gross out gags, and kind of have some more fun before the movie starts to sort of head down darker territory. Yeah. And like we all know that guy. Anyone that's been to college knows that guy. Yeah. Where you're like, yeah. oh, you act like you're the worst because you act like you're not shady, but I really just want to like shove you down an escalator. Well, like, I, love, I, I love that she was like the literal monstrous version of him. It's just the way he's, just that yeah, no, my schedule's cleared. Let's go. Like I love it. <laughs> love it. Yeah. 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 Well, hey, thank you so much for for stopping by the show. It's been a pleasure having you on and if Thank you ever you want to stop me. by again sometime and just hang out and talk monsters. Totally, totally. I'm always down to talk monsters. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Sorry we got cut short a little bit. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Have a great day. Bye, guys. Have a good one. Bye. See ya. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of record human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization. The need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive. <laughs>